It's time to set aside the superficial. It's time to go deeper. It's time to engage in truth. Here's John Bornchain. Well, everybody, welcome back to Engage in Truth. This is John Bornchain. I'm a senior pastor of Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley Church right here in Colorado Springs, and I'm thrilled that you're tuning in. We're continuing in our study of 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Now, as a verse-by-verse expository church, that's what we've been doing, is spending a great deal of time in this study of 1 Corinthians chapter 14. In fact, this is week five as we have been studying the spiritual gift of tongues and prophecy, and now we're going to continue to expound on this a little bit further, really dive in deeper into the subject of untying the confusion. There's a lot of confusion about the spiritual gifts of prophecy in tongues. And so if you've missed this particular subject matter, and now I've piqued your interest and you're like, wow, how did I miss that? You can go to our website at calvaryfountain.com and there you'll find a drop-down link. It says video audio. Click that, and then you'll see a link there for the podcast and audio sermons, as well as a link to our video, uh, which is a video archive of what we're going through on Sundays as we're going through the book of Matthew there. But from the podcast, you can click and re-listen to these broadcasts right there at calvaryfountain.com. Please go and share these with your friends. This subject especially has created such division in the church, and may it never be. We really are called, according to the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans, to be of one mind, one voice in our worship to Almighty God. And we have tolerated such division in the church. We have allowed ourselves to major in the minors and really to to divide up the the body of Christ as we even try to just lump ourselves together with individuals who express themselves maybe spiritually in one way. Maybe they consider that they have a certain type of spiritual gift, and so they huddle together and, and to, to excommunicate almost those who don't share in that type of spiritual gift. And we're seeing unnecessary division in the body. Of Christ. So I'm hoping through this study we clarify some of these very difficult subject matters and really explore it a, a bit further. And so we're going to try to cover verses 21 to 40 in our limited time here today of 1 Corinthians chapter 14. So let's pick up verse 21, 1 Corinthians 14. Here's what we read In the law it is written, with men of other tongues and other lips, I will speak to this people. And yet for all that, they will not hear me says the Lord. Now, Paul explains why spiritual maturity and self-control is so important in a corporate worship service. That's what he's doing in verses 21 to 25. So first of all here, Paul cites a prophecy from Isaiah 28, verses 11 to 12, with the words of Moses from Deuteronomy 28, verse 49. So in Deuteronomy 28 in the law, Moses was warning the people of Israel at the end of his ministry that because they turned their backs on God, their enemies were going to come in and overthrow them. And they would be hearing in their own streets other languages that were going to be spoken. So the hearing of other tongues was really a sign from God, in this case, one of judgment as a result of disobedience. So without the proper context of Deuteronomy 28 and Isaiah 28, we can read that text and think something totally different in our modern context. And it's important then we read the Bible cover to cover to properly understand what's being communicated here. So was that ecstatic utterances? No, the other tongue in this question here are languages of the earth. This is why the words men of are added here to help us distinguish that. This again delineates 
that tongues is a language. That's why this spiritual gift of glossa, where we get glossary from, it is a language. It has a construct. There's accountability as there is throughout Scripture. With some 31,000 verses, we see over 63,000 cross-references in the Scripture. Every verse is accountable to another, just as we're accountable for every word that leaves our lips. This is the, the seriousness of this subject. So Paul, it seems here, is is referring partially to Deuteronomy because he says, in the law it is written, but he draws predominantly from Isaiah the prophet. Let's read that, Isaiah 28, verses 11 to 12. For with stammering lips and another tongue, he will speak to this people, to whom he said, this is the rest with which you may cause the weary to rest, and this is the refreshing, yet they would not hear. So, so the point of this Old Testament quotation is that if Israel would not hear the Lord through the prophets, their hearts would not change even if he spoke through foreign languages to them, through foreign people as a result of that judgment. So whether by a native or a foreign tongue, a hardened heart will not be open to the truth through various tongues alone. So they must be drawn to God by the Holy Spirit, just like we read in Acts chapter 2. They must hear the truth. So let's go on, verse, 1 Corinthians 14, 22. Therefore, tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophesying is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. This can be a very confusing verse, but I believe this may be drawn from what occurred at Pentecost. Here's some of the instruction that we've received as a Calvary chapel. We've heard from the late Pastor Chuck Smith many times before, especially through this study. Here's what he had to say on this particular subject. So on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, tongues served as a sign for those who did not believe. For on the day of Pentecost, when these devout Jews were drawn by the phenomena, they heard them speaking in the various languages to praise God and to glorify the Lord. Peter then explained to them the phenomena that they were observing gave them the scriptural basis. Okay, so when Peter was finished with his message and the Holy Spirit had convicted their hearts, they said, what shall we do? Peter said, repent. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So for the promises to you, to your children, and all who are far off, as many as the Lord are called, will call. As many as the Lord our God will call according to Acts chapter 2, 38 to 39. So approximately 3,000 of them believed and were added to the body of Christ that day, which was the birth of the church. They were drawn by the phenomena. They were convinced by the phenomena they, of speaking in tongues. And it was a sign there to the unbelievers, and they were converted to Jesus Christ as a result of what they heard and observed. So this phenomenon that they observed not only drew them in, it con they were convinced of it, and ultimately it laid, led to salvation of many. Okay, this is, a, this is a, why we see tongues going hand in hand with evangelism. Now, 1 Corinthians 14, 23 to 25 then says, Therefore, if the whole church comes together in one place and all speak with tongues, and there come in those who are uninformed or unbelievers, they will not say that you are out of your mind. 
But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in, he is convinced by all, he is convicted by all, and thus the secrets of his heart are revealed. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. So it's interesting that on the day of Pentecost, there were those who heard the men speaking in tongues, and immediately they mocked them, saying that they were full of wine, according to Acts 2.14. However, after Peter spoke boldly to them, they were cut to the heart, according to verse 37 of Acts chapter 2. So the effect of Christian prophecy, which in this case is bold forthtelling, just as Peter did, on the unbeliever is threefold. This is what happens. They're convicted of sin, according to John 16, 8. They take account of their sins and examine their sinful condition, and it lays them open. Their heart is now made open to the inspection of the Holy Spirit, according to John 4, 16 to 19. So this is a all of this, as we see now come to pass here in 1 Corinthians 14, 24, all of this emphasizes that all the church, through its prophetic message, has, in God's providence, a part in bringing the unbeliever to this place of conviction. You see, all of these spiritual gifts have a an application. There's a reason why God has given them to us. Yes, we can see a fullness of worship, but what we see here is an emphasis on the heart of the unbeliever to become a saved individual. So let's just let's just reexamine this here just a little quickly here. Um, do you have a, a set of house rules? You're probably either nodding to yourself or maybe thinking through this. You have a house rule ordinance perhaps in place. Maybe it's spoken or unspoken. Uh, I think that probably as parents, we have a, an expectation for not only our children in the premises, but for those who enter into our home, there's there's some unspoken rules perhaps that are even said. You know, you, you might have an expectation that someone takes their shoes off. Maybe they leave their shoes on. Uh, they conduct themselves in a certain way. There's a set of house rules, whether we admit it or not. And the purpose and list of those rules is ultimately to turn chaos into order confusion into peace. So in order to remain sane, I would suggest that every family adopt their own personal house rules so that it's mutually agreed upon by both husband and wife or or however the the home is structured. Maybe you've got to, a lot of children in the home, maybe you've got to you're taking care of the the elderly in your home. Everybody needs to be on the same page, right? About what these house rules are. Otherwise you you just assume that they understand, you're frustrated when they don't pick up on the assumption, right? So there has to be some clarity with house rules. So like a good parent here, Paul is communicating with precision house rules. He's insisting that there must be order in the church. If chaos and confusion reign, then worship is not going to be building up the body of Christ. People are going to be frustrated. They're going to depart because it just seemed like, I don't know, the disorder was reigning supreme. Okay, so while worship can be creative and free, it needs to be orderly. And that's tough because a lot of times what we find is that, well, if we're truly, at least this is the perception, if we're so spiritual, then we're just going to be led by the Holy Spirit and suddenly songs are break, breaking out and people are making a bunch of noise and ecstatic utterances and, and it seems like random and everything just seems a bit disorderly. And that can create frustration for some. And and it's not because their lack of spirituality, but rather this is what Paul is giving us. He wants us to pursue orderly, wise worship. So let's look at 1 Corinthians 14, 26. How is it then, brethren, 
whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. Okay, now we could read that initially without putting together the sequence here. How is it then is a question. One of Paul's typical methods of summing up a discussion before moving on to the next section here is he's asking them a question to to reveal the transparency of the situation. Paul is stating here that their services are wild and everybody wants to get in on the act. Everybody has a psalm. Everybody has a teaching, a tongue, a revelation, an interpretation. And people have been misinterpreted this as taking it almost as a directive rather than Paul wanting them to be transparent about the situation that has led to some chaos and disorder in the church. It's not a command. It's a rebuke for disorderly services that they were having there in Corinth. So Paul's counsel is for all of God's people to come prepared to participate and to do so in an orderly fashion. So when the house churches in Corinth met for worship, it was normal for everyone to come to contribute. Some would bring a song. Some would uh, bring something that was written, a teaching, a revelation. Some had a tongue or interpretation, but it was all done in orderly, wise fashion. These five gifts are not exhaustive. Paul is merely saying that he longs for God's people to come to church ready to build up others ready to sacrifice for the greater cause of others, right? And to participate in something that brings honor only fully to God. He's almost an exclamation point here, order in the church, okay? Just like you'd have in the courtroom, order in the court, right? This is, this is we're doing this to his glory, not bringing the spotlight on individuals who, who want, uh, maybe they don't say it, maybe they don't even think about it, Maybe they're just quick to jump into ecstatic utterances and maybe dancing up and down the aisle way. What they're doing is actually putting the spotlight on themselves. So we need to put all of this in proper perspective here. Paul concludes verse 26 with, let all things be done for edification. Okay, so the corporate worship service is not a time for self-edification, showing off, or entertainment. It is a time for edification and strengthening the body through God's holy word. That The church is not about the individual. It's about the body. So Paul now moves from the general principle here to specific guidelines. Here's what we read, verses 27 to 28. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two or at the most three, each in turn, and let one interpret. But if there's no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Ouch. That's going to challenge some folks right now. Again, we need to be challenged about our traditions, our perceptions, our uh, viewpoints, our eisegesis, as we've read into text, our various perspectives of how we feel about something. It's important that we understand the proper instruction for how God wants us to worship in an orderly and wise fashion. No one should speak in various languages unless an interpreter is present and identified. Otherwise, let him keep silent. This is a command. So a tongue speaker can control their gift. The interpreter can even be a tongue speaker. Okay, and we see that in verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 14. So if there is no interpreter, here's what he says, let him keep silent in church. So before one speaks in a tongue, he must know there is an interpreter or interpretation, not just hope that there's one. So if there's no interpreter present, the tongue speaker doesn't have to stifle his or her gift. He or she just simply must use it silently. Okay, so let him speak to himself and to God. 
Okay, that's a clear instruction, very specific. We may not like what we just heard there, but that's the truth. That's God's word. So let if you have contention, contend with God. I'm just the messenger. Okay, now here at uh, what we typically do at Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley, we adopt some basic practices here. We will, Again, you want to keep the house in good order, so we want to communicate this in, in clear with clarity and precision. So we've adopted a few protocols for that orderly, wise worship in keeping with other Calvary chapels all across the world. What we believe is that there should be no audible expression of tongues in public church worship services or gatherings because if it's truly a gift of the Holy Spirit at work, we don't believe the Holy Spirit will interrupt himself. We adhere to Paul's instruction for orderly worship. I've been in services where people just suddenly just start jumping out of their chairs in ecstatic utterances, uh, even Holy Ghost laughter, as some have called it, or even fainting-type spells. All that does is create a distraction. I I don't believe that that is healthy, orderly, wise worship. In small groups or adult fellowships, we've asked that people will ask permission or consider who's present. If there is no interpretation, then the leader should graciously state, although we encourage the exercise of your gifts, we know that God will speak to us in a way that is edifying to the group as a whole. So think about this in a practical sense. If someone wants to start speaking in Portuguese or Mandarin, but there's no interpreter, then it would be best to pray in silence and allow the Holy Spirit to speak to the group through known languages even through the reading of God's holy word. That's a practical application that we can all learn from in that. So again, let me just cite Pastor Chuck Smith, the late Chuck Smith on this. We believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit mentioned in the scriptures and that they are valid for today if they are exercised within the scriptural guidelines. We as believers are to convert or covet rather the best gifts seeking to exercise them in love that the whole body of Christ might be edified. We believe that love is more important than the most spectacular gifts, and without this love, all exercise of spiritual gifts is worthless. So, after providing regulations on tongues, what Paul is now going to offer is some restrictions on prophecy as well. He's not just trying to beat up on how they've been using tongues in corporate worship. He wants to now evaluate them from how they're using prophecy even. Again, these two seem to be getting the spotlight and, and it was ca- causing division even in that church. 1 Corinthians 14, 29-32, we read, Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others judge. But if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the, to the prophets." So Paul's rules on prophecy are as follows. Here's Let me try to bullet point this for you. This is not a license for disorder, suggesting that someone can stand up during the teaching of God's word and start speaking over that person. You have to remember that God has structured the church and its leadership. God has done this. According to Acts chapter 20, Hebrews 13, 1 Timothy 2-3, James 3, and even Ephesians 4. Go back and read the entirety of those chapters. So uh, prophecy is welcome in a corporate setting, but done so within a structure that is edifying to the group. So, so the church is to weigh carefully what's said. Okay, the word that's used there is diacrino, which means to evaluate carefully. So sometimes this could take days. I mean, a, a prophecy might be controversial, and, and the elders may need some time of prayer to determine its validity. 
You go back to 1 Thessalonians 5.21 or 1 John 4.1 on that. So everything is done in an orderly fashion. No speaking over another person's words. If this control is lost, a prophecy is not of God. Paul declares that people can control themselves and that a sign of the Holy Spirit's presence is order and courtesy. Right? It should be chaotic. So in our services, we focus on a personal relationship with God through worship, prayer, and the teaching of His Holy Word. We'd rather the Holy Word speak for all above all men, right? This is the Word of God. So we teach both expositorily and topically. I mean, we're going to go through an expositional study of God's Word, and on occasion, we're going to hit some topics through that study, even on special occasions. So we ask that many people refrain from speaking in tongues during services, nor prophesy while Bible study is in progress, because we do not believe that the Holy Spirit will interrupt himself. So if you think that God has given you a word for someone, it would be wise to seek out biblical counsel, maybe from a pastor or an elder or a church leader, to ensure you're truly operating in your gift and your burden is accountable to both biblical support and delivery. Okay, we need to make sure everything, if it's of the Holy Spirit, it's going to be accountable to God's Holy Word. So then you need to go to that person rather than than to others, because that becomes fodder for gossip. So many experienced leaders estimate that 80% of prophecies are for one to another person rather than to the whole group. Rarely are they a message for the entire body unless being delivered through a designated group teacher in the church. You can see that Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 12. So as we discussed back in 1 Corinthians 12, prophecy is a declaration of God's will to God's people. Prophecy is for edification and encouragement. It doesn't necessarily exclude teaching and doctrine. And I'll tell you that outside of the 18 books of prophecy and the 56 prophets that are highlighted in Scripture, the role of a prophet today is not foretelling. That, that's been done. Uh, this The capstone was given to us in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 22, 18 to 19. So now the role of any prophets would be foretelling that's totally accountable to God's holy word. Therefore, prophets proclaim truth, not future events. Uh, the, the future events have been given to us by Jesus Christ himself. He was the final word and authority through the revelation of Jesus Christ by way of the pen of the apostle John. So uh, it, when people say like something to the effect of, Oh, it seems to me, or I feel impressed to say, then in that comment with, does this make sense to you? Or, I don't know what it means, but I believe it is for you. There is no place in the church for the person who says, God told me such and such, and you need to follow me, or follow exactly what I have said. Everything should be held accountable to God's word, because now that person is putting themselves up on a platform as the authority for God to you. Okay, that's very dangerous territory. A a person can legitimately say, I believe God wants us to do such and such, or I have a very strong impression that God wants us to do such and such, but they have no right to say, thus saith the Lord, uh, unless, of course, they can show in the Bible where the Lord really said that. Okay, so every prophecy given in the church is subject to evaluation, careful weighing by mature believers in the body. So if the message is for the church, Deliver a message to the pastor in private. If the pastor believes it is of God, he will deliver it after some some real prayer on that subject. So if he cannot decide, then the elders will need to hear it. Here's where we read verse 33. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. 
Let me read that again. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, just as he did at creation. He spoke and it was so. Words were used, communicated with precision, and it was so. So Paul wants the procedures in the church, in the worship setting, to not be disruptive, but to be orderly, and to do so to make sure that God is the main thing. It's all about him. We are the body of Christ. Christ is the head of his church. He's the one we come to worship, not the individuals on stage, certainly not individuals that may be trying to bring attention to themselves in the crowd. We can create disorder. And Toyu and Boyu is what was expelled at creation. God is a God of order. So orderly worship reflects the very character of God. And you'll find order in the tabernacle and the temple. And now you and I are the temple of the Holy Spirit, according to 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20. So therefore, we need to conduct ourselves in an orderly manner as well, because we reflect the very nature of God. We are his ambassadors, light into the dark places. We, we are called to represent him even as a royal priesthood. And God has a set directive and protocol for how things should be handled in the way that we make sure that he is the centerpiece of all worship. Nothing else should take away from our worship and our eyes being on Jesus Christ, our Lord, and the understanding of his holy word and songs that are sung to praise him, not to elevate man. We've kind of lost our moorings a bit in the church. We've really gotten sucked into this idea of bigger, better entertainment. Who's got the smoke machine? Who's got the better lights and sound systems? All of these things should not be the emphasis. Rather, it's all about our Lord Jesus Christ. And we've got to get back to that place of purity, undefiled worship. You even go back to before Constantine got involved in the church around the 300s AD. It was a pure, simplistic form of worship because it was all about God. It was all about his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So so let's get back to our roots. Let's get back to being the church of Jesus Christ and making the main thing the main thing and, and clean up. How, how we've allowed a little bit of disorder to creep into the church, divisions to creep into the church. Now, denominations that are being formed and separated from one another over these very sensitive topics, let us praise Jesus Christ. The main thing needs to be the main thing. Thank you for listening today. We'll continue in our study of 1 Corinthians 14. Keep going through this. Some of this may be a very sensitive subject for you. Again, go back to calvaryfountain.com and listen to our prior studies of this subject. If you'd like the sermon notes, we'd be happy to send that to you as well. We want you to be equipped to go out boldly in the name of Jesus Christ. Teach others to do likewise. That's what Ephesians 4 tells us to do, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That's what we're here to do, to help you not only equip you, but help you experience a fullness of worship unto Almighty God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Again, this is a ministry of Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley Church. If you'd like to learn more, visit us at calvaryfountain.com. Services are at 8 a.m. and 10 a.m. on Sundays, and we would love to see you there. God bless you, my friends. Take care.